You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 23rd of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Dutch voters present the EU with an almighty headache. Russian disinformation continues to find a way through. And does Australia even exist? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Aliona Hlivko and Jonathan Fenby will discuss the day's big stories. Plus, we'll have Henry Ree Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Aliona Hlivko, Managing Director at the Henry Jackson Society, and by Jonathan Fenby, author and former editor of the South China Morning Post. Hello to you both. Hello. Good evening. Um, As we often do, we will start the show by recapping recent gallivanting by our guests. Um, Jonathan, you first, because I think you are back more recently from Singapore. I'm back a couple of days ago from Singapore, still uh, suffering from jet lag, so I hope I can speak coherently. I mean, as long as you can stay awake for the next <laughs> half an hour or so. I'll try hard. Uh, yeah. and, and if at some point, you know, if, if at various points you can form a like, coherent, actually more coherent sentences than the one I'm trying to formulate now, that, that would be ideal. I will do so. What were you doing in Singapore? Visiting family. Okay. My son lives there, uh, and I spent a lot of time with family. We ate well, and I swam a great deal. That sounds delightful. Um, And, Leona, you have been in the United States. You went in the other direction. Mm, Indeed, and it wasn't anywhere near as delightful. And gallivanting is probably the right terminology for a Ukrainian (laughs) wandering around the Capitol Hill cabinets and trying to knock on all doors and talk to all people about Ukraine and actually say to them that it's still important to support us and talk to many other people and many other foreign policy problems that are just keep hitting us with waves. Um, We will be talking later in the show about a Ukraine-adjacent story, though that is more, uh, you know, symbolic than substantial. But on the substantial front, how much nervousness did you detect among those Americans who have been supportive and sympathetic about what next year might bring, specifically the possibility that this time next year we are once again through gritted teeth having to utter the phrase President-elect Donald Trump? I think it was more nervousness specifically about that rather than Ukraine in particular. Of course, everyone was saying to me that, look, it's a bit unsustainable for Ukraine to keep expecting the support that it received last year, which is very different narrative to what everyone was saying this time last year, which was troubling in itself. But I think the most troubling thing for people on Capitol Hill, the ones that I spoke to, um, even in experienced ones in politics, they're really perplexed about the fact of Trump coming back into the office. They think that the whole foreign policy will just fall apart. And people are genuinely concerned that NATO might not exist if he decides to pull out. If he actually follows through on his rhetoric right now, 
there is also a chance that he might step away and that this is just pre-electoral narratives that are not necessarily true. But chances are equal right now. Well, we will proceed with a not unrelated theme uh, in the Netherlands, where many of the parties who contested yesterday's general election will now be trying to figure out if they can keep the party which won the election out of government. The result was a hefty victory for the Freedom Party of Geert Wilders, who has conducted a long and frequently obnoxious campaign against large-scale immigration. Wilders' party nearly doubled their number of seats in the House of Representatives, but may struggle to find a majority's worth of coalition partners willing to hold their noses. Um, Jonathan, first of all, if Wilders is able to assemble a majority coalition, and that is at the moment a pretty big if, would this necessarily be any bigger headache for the EU than has been presented in the past and indeed in the current by a Brothers of Italy-led government in Italy, um, the recently outgoing Law and Justice Party in Mm -hmm. Poland, or or Viktor Orban's Fidesz in Hungary? I think the answer is yes to that. I mean, you have to say Wilders, his party, the PVV, they got only 37 seats in a 150-seat parliament. So he's got a long way to go to put together a a majority and will depend on one of the other parties. Um, But as well as the anti-Islamic rhetoric, which he's been famous for, and anti-immigrant rhetoric, the the anti-EU theme has always been there pretty strongly with him. And I I think he's got to, he will have to continue it or try to continue it. I mean, would he, though, just to follow that up, Jonathan, actually be serious about pursuing that to its logistical endpoint, which is the referendum on what is known as Nexit? Because polling, which I'm sure Wilders has read, has rarely found above 30% of support for that in the Netherlands. I think on that he will probably bend, as Le Pen has uh, in, in France over the last uh, few years and so on. Uh, and that would probably be the price which one of the other parties would uh, put up to uh, supporting him and enabling him to become prime minister. But even within the EU, he can cause an awful lot of problems by blocking things, by being difficult, by linking up with Hungary, for instance, uh, and who knows who else. Uh, Perhaps Italy will change its mind a bit. uh, And creating a kind of... Uh, refusenik block within the EU, and that would affect Ukraine, among other things. Well, it would. Um, Aliona, we were talking about Italy, and I know that there was nervousness among Ukraine and its allies when Georgia Maloney became Prime Minister of Italy, but where Ukraine was concerned, at least, she got with the programme remarkably quickly. She's actually been extremely supportive. Um, I think it's probably a bit optimistic to expect a similar transformation by Geert Wilders, who has been uh, absolutely uncompromising on this one up until this point. Yes, I do believe that he's slightly different to to Georgia Maloney in in his stance. It's very troubling to see such far-right instances of sparking across Europe. And I think we have to be really carefully watching what's happening next year with the EU elections. This doesn't come as a surprise, and it's something that European governments are anticipating, as well as societies, that because of uh, recent events, protests uh, erupting in all major capitals of Europe, the lack of social cohesion, the spike of anti-Semitism, and inevitably Islamophobia as an answer to that, we will see many 
populist right-wing parties now come front to the agenda. Um, and I think this is slightly different time than, for example, even last year when Giorgia Maloney took office in Italy. The dynamics are very different. So we need to be very careful with that, especially when we're talking about the Netherlands. It's one of the first countries who have agreed to provide the F-16s to Ukraine. So I think we'll yeah. definitely be strongly relying on that. Mm. So hopefully... We don't know whether the government will be formed, as you've said, but hopefully even if it will be and even if he will be the next prime minister, the coalition parties, as well as just common sense, will kick in for him to move away. Because we've often seen it that far right rhetoric doesn't always translate into far right policies. It tends to move closer to the center. But I'm being optimistic here. Well, on, on the subject of NATO, though, Aliona, just to follow that up, uh, he has not made any pledges about withdrawing the Netherlands from NATO. He has suggested that it might be past time to throw Turkey out of NATO. I'm not even sure how possible that is. But do you think that thought might, all things considered, have an amount of furtive sympathy among some other NATO members? I really doubt it. And then actually the first stone of miscontent that might be thrown between them and Hungary, for example, because whatever you say about Hungarystan, Turkestan, that region, every single country relies heavily upon their neighbors and, and Hungary is definitely relying upon Turkey because security yeah. of Europe depends on Turkey. With the flow of, of migrants, uh, even terrorists going through Turkish territory, with them stopping any assertive aggression from Russia in the Black Sea, a lot depends on Turkey right now. They're close ties with South Caucasus. Um, so he would not dare, I don't think, uh, corroborating something against Turkey, and that will certainly not gain any grounds from the Allies. Uh, Jonathan, are there lessons here, uh, one way or the other, for other European parties which are going to find themselves in contests with far-right parties? Because we saw some of the more moderate Dutch parties, including the party of outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutte, try to annex some of uh, Geert Wilders' ground by taking a tougher line on immigration themselves. But does that actually help? Because... If a voter is motivated by animus towards immigration, they're going to vote for the actually proper, full-throated, high-octane anti-immigration party. They're not going to decide to vote for someone like Mark Rutte. Yeah, well, as Jean-Marie Le Pen, the founder of the National Front in France, used to say uh, when right-wing politicians sounded a very anti-immigrant uh, theme, uh, he would say, well, why vote for the ersatz one when you can get the real one? I vote for me there. And that, that certainly, you know, I think um, centrist, if you like, orthodox, mainstream conservatives, whatever we call them, should stick to their guns and not be seduced by the idea of picking up a few votes uh, on the far right. But the trouble is, and just finally on this... Chance, Although they may be out of office as a result. Well, exactly. <laughs> you preempted my next question was, is it actually possible in the current climate in Europe to win an election by going out in front of the voters and say, immigration's great, it's fine, it's good, actually. Well, or, or rather, you, you don't quite say that. You say uh, immigration is all right, but we will control it there. 
Uh, Now, whether you can make that a persuasive electoral uh, message is quite another question. I would just say, going on from this, that the most important election probably, certainly will be in France, where Le Pen seems to be well-placed to win the presidency next time around, but even more in Germany and how AFD does. Well, let's move along somewhat, though depressingly not that much. Uh, Among the less regrettable early casualties of Russia's invasion of Ukraine were Russian propaganda under Foghorn's RT and Sputnik, both of which were heavily sanctioned by the European Union. However, Russia being Russia and the internet being the internet, ways around this are being discovered. While this is having an inevitably polluting effect on the general discourse, how fortunate we are that as both the United States and the United Kingdom face election years, we can absolutely rely on the robust media literacy of the voters of both countries, who in recent years have hardly ever been taken in by obviously absurd and or fraudulent prospectuses floated by honking mountebanks. Um, Alyona, how worry, well, how big a worry really is Russian disinformation, especially if people are now having to go out of their way to access it? Surely this is a fairly self-selecting audience of of weirdos. Mm, Absolutely. Um, I would say people that really need treatment. And I mean that in the best way possible, because A, Russian disinformation is a very serious uh, hybrid warfare tool Mm. that they've been using against Ukraine, against the rest of the world, uh, causing protests across Europe, as we've seen uh, in many researchers, whether it's in France, some signs in England, we see their, their interference in elections across Europe, even perhaps Brexit referendum. I think that was proven as a fact that there was an element of them trying to influence that. The extent to which it affected the elections in the US or referendum here in the UK is arguable. It's not that big, but still they have the access. And what we now have to be prepared for and why I'm saying that those people need to be treated, because let's look at the disinformation as if it was an illegal substance, a drug of sorts. So at first... It first appeared people didn't really know how bad it is, that it's actually a drug, that it causes addiction and all sorts of side effects. So they looked at it, and once the time went by, people understood that it actually sows discontent and illness in the society, causing some serious problems. So they removed it, they banned it, made it illegal, got rid of it in the country. But now, inevitably, it's trying to sip through the black market. And that's Mm. what they're doing with these mirror websites. So I think the progress is being made. But it's about now addressing, just like they do with drugs, you actually need to go to people who are addicted and work with them to refuse to take those drugs, to refuse to find illegal means of getting that sick, distorted information. So I think the same goes for the societies now, especially going further with spread of AI, technology, etc. We need to teach our population from early years how to detect disinformation, how to ignore it and how not to fall into those traps. It, it does start to, I mean, this, this is one of those things, Jonathan, on which I'm, I'm pretty sure I have done a full 180 degree skid on over the last couple of decades. I think I used to be one of those people who thought there was no greater waste of time, no more ludicrous dos than undertaking courses in media studies. And I think I perhaps felt like that because at one point I did. And frankly, it was. Um, but well, it, it, I, never, it, I never did. It, it, I, I, it, I, I'm unreformed. It, <laughs> it does now start to feel like about the most important thing we can be teaching people. 
Yeah, and, uh, but I, perhaps I'm unreconstructed in this way, but I'm also very dubious, perhaps this is comes from my background too, uh, in media, of any kind of censorship by a self-appointed state. And that's the, that's the danger that you get into this. Do we Edu- do education we ban, and censorship do, are not necessarily the same thing. Mm, they 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 shade over very quickly, one into the other. But otherwise, we, we do end up in the situation in which you know we now are, in, and you don't have to wait terribly long. And we will come more to the subject of Twitter shortly. But you know, tw- twice in the last two days, there have been breaking stories about which people have leapt to conclusions, and yeah. the idea has gone round the world before anybody has been able to say, "Well, hang on, that's not actually happened." Thinking uh, one of the the explosion at the uh, U.S. Canada border crossing yesterday, yeah. uh, and the other today uh, of, and the details are definitely not in about a stabbing, uh, a, you know, a mass stabbing in Dublin. But yeah. already, if you click on now people have already decided what happened yeah well this is uh, what do you do do you stop any divulgation of information and news or do you count on edu- education or whatever you call it of the public so that people will say oh that's there but i don't believe it i mean is there an argument though to bring this back to twitter aliona and its current stewardship by arguably Earth's most irritating individual, that it, it, it does get to a point where it is being operated with such flagrant irresponsibility that more, well, I mean, it would be drastic action. The thought does not sit well with me either. But you can see, you, you don't need that great an imagination to see the danger of somebody like Elon Musk running a platform like Twitter in a presidential election. I do share your views on Elon Musk, absolutely. Um, it's an argument that I think is being played out now in in public sphere. If we remember the same argument about censorship versus freedom of speech or security versus freedom of speech, it was being held about Russia today, even mm. a, a year ago or, or a year and a half ago, when we were deliberating, well, does the UK ban them does the Ofcom make that decision or they let them operate? But it was clearly defined as a danger and a threat. And I think the same can be done uh, with social media companies like Twitter and other platforms. We need to clearly develop the mechanism. And I think, of course, the UK has been working through online safety bill. They got a lot of criticism, but it should be a work in progress. And I think as tech evolves and we see spread of these platforms, we need to clearly have some very clear indications of where freedom of speech borders with inciting hate, with racism, with all sorts of other destructive behaviors that are affecting people's lives. And that certainly needs to be taken charge. The fact that we never had social media before, prior to my generation, let's say, and that we didn't have those mechanisms in place, doesn't mean that we need to purely stick to the legislation that was there before, to the concept of freedom of speech. It's is evolving just like the modern world is evolving. And we need to be able to honestly and openly and probably with courage address those issues, have a public debate and develop concrete mechanisms to actually 
put those tools in place. But Jonathan, just finally on this, could some of those regulations, even conventions that applied to old school media be imposed upon social media? I mean, you you were, as you've been saying, a a newspaper journalist and a newspaper editor. All jokes aside, you can't just print any old nonsense uh, in a newspaper. So why should it be possible to do it on social media? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. And I've felt for a long time that social media as an information tool and disinformation tool should be subject to the same kind of legislation as uh, old-fashioned mainstream media. And also, ideally, of course, and this is ideally, the people running it should have the same kind of inhibitions which most newspaper editors have had. Uh, chance would be a fine thing, I suspect. Uh, yes. um, uh, we will move along uh, to the lighting of well-known buildings or landmarks in particular colours. It has become a commonplace means of expressing solidarity with a particular cause at a particular time. In February 2022, to cite an obvious example, many distinguished, distinguished addresses and one or two Russian embassies were bathed in the blue and yellow of Ukraine's flag. It is a nice enough gesture in itself, but as more than a few institutions have discovered it is difficult to know where to stop. If you do it for this war, disaster or cause, you might well be asked. In tones of high indignation, why not do it for that one? Wembley Stadium, recently beset by demands to light its arch in Israel's blue and white, has decided to avoid all future such controversies by abjuring political illuminations entirely. Um, Aliona, first of all, I, I Interested in your views on the value of this gesture. In February 2022... you know, a, a situation unimaginable, I'm sure, to most of our listeners. Your, your country is, you know, invaded wholesale by its neighbour. You and, you know, your fellow Ukrainians are enduring a moment of extraordinary existential terror. You're not even sure if your country will still exist meaningfully this time next week. Amidst pressures like that, did it make any difference at all to see various buildings around the Western world lit up in the colours of your flag? Oh, it absolutely brought me to my tears every time I saw that. The, I think that the tragedy of seeing, as you say, and that's very accurate to describe not knowing whether the country will exist this time next week, with the level of support just gave me such reassurance and support at that time that it it meant so much and it still means so much even now walking through Westminster and seeing Ukrainian flags above the government buildings and knowing that okay this country that I call my home now is actually standing with my home country it's most reassuring feeling but what I have to say Andrew having looked and having lived in in the West for five years now and having seen especially corporates big corporate companies how mm. they're all trying to you know be as politically correct as possible because this is the trend now you have to align yourself with good causes it's become more and more difficult as you say to identify those good causes because with inevitably erupting wars across the world and various new issues coming up where do you know how to draw the line and which issue is important and which is not. And that causes now discontent rather than agreement and support. So I thought to myself, if I were not to see those flags now, would I be okay in knowing that the UK government still supports Ukraine? Absolutely. Just looking at the policies of the donations, Cameron visiting Ukraine, I think the core of the issue is still more important than the show. Although I must say, emotion-wise... It, it was very valuable at the beginning. 
Um, Wembley was one of the venues, Jonathan, that did light up in blue and yellow. The, the famous Wembley arch over the stadium was adorned in blue and yellow. Uh, the FA has decided they won't be doing that anymore. Um, are you sympathetic nevertheless to their position? Uh, I understand why they decided it. That doesn't mean I'm sympathetic to it. (laughs) They're avoiding a problem. I mean, the easiest way of avoiding this problem is to say we don't do anything. Mm. Then you don't have a choice to make. But I think they should be uh, strong enough to make the decision of what is right and what is wrong. But but to follow that up, you can see the problem they're trying to avoid here. I mean, it would have been a perfectly reasonable reaction and plenty of places did on, say, October 8th after the dreadful massacres perpetrated by Hamas to to light up in the the colours of Israel in a gesture of solidarity. The trouble is, obviously, a few weeks later, what's your argument against lighting it up in the the colours of the Palestinian flag? Yeah, yeah. That's the kind of difficult choice, which I'm not going to make now, (laughs) and I'm not the FA, but that uh, I think you have to be ready to take, if you are a kind of, at least a quasi, not a state, but a public institution. Or or do they make the mistake, uh, Adriana, I don't know if it's a mistake or not, um, whether it's an ethical or a tactical mistake, but is part of the problem... When they try to explain themselves, you can't win, can you? Because the question of, well, why Ukraine and why not, I don't know, Sudan or Ethiopia or Nagorno-Karabakh is actually a perfectly good question, but there's no good answer to it. Is is the way forward just to decide ad hoc, yeah, OK, we're going to light it up for this cause, and if anybody gives us any grief, then we just don't bother engaging? Mm. It's such an individual approach. It's, it's very hard to answer that. I think in a nutshell, what I'm worried about and what I've seen happen with Ukraine as well, it started as an enormous show of support, which I can't reiterate enough. We appreciated that so much. And it actually, I think it was part of the power the Ukrainians had to fight off Russians at the beginning when we saw, okay, the world is actually with us. But eventually the message got so diluted Mm. and the Ukrainian cause became a trend a social media trend and, you know, I'm going to back this cause to be popular because the cause is popular now. And we perfectly, I perfectly understood it too. I don't want this also to be turned into something that people just do as a tick boxing, box ticking (laughs) exercise. Either way works. All of those, yeah, as empty as as that phrase is. Um, So I think the same thing goes to the causes. I I personally am of a view, again, having seen this across many corporations, how people are using important causes and almost diluting them to nothing Mm. and losing the essence of that just because they want to use it for their own PR and self-promotion. I think maybe they just get on with their jobs, whatever their company is doing uh, or the government is doing, and, and leave people to support them. Because still to this day, when I see a Ukrainian flag in the window or in the balcony, I appreciate it even more than seeing it on a government building. Well, we move along now to news that Australia is not, in fact, there. Uh, which is especially upsetting for those of us who have just booked very expensive Christmas flights home. Earlier this week, Microsoft's search engine, rather, Bing, seemed to have become infested by an obscurantist conspiracy theory which asserts the non-existence of Australia, to which one can only respond by asking the nearest available Englishman, Jonathan, who they think has been tanning them at cricket all these years. When people asked Bing, does Australia exist, they received a response 
in the negative. Um, Algona, first of all, I think an actually better question is, does Bing exist? Has anybody ever uh, used could it? I, could I just break him? Because I should answer your question. <laughs> Clearly, these non-existent people... Uh, portraying themselves as Australian cricketers have been regularly arriving on our sacred mm. shores, probably in uh, extraterrestrial machines, dressed in white and with supernatural powers. So uh, naturally uh, uh, they win. I mean, but that isn't Australia. I mean, are, are you suggesting that my people are preternaturally, athletically gifted superhumans, possibly not of this world? Yes, I mean, I, I'm fine with it. I'm, I'm it, fine. It's well known. Australians are aliens. Absolutely fine with that. Um, Bing, though, genuinely, has anybody ever used it? I, don't I think I, I have it on some... Yes, I, I find myself in it sometimes. Um, have, it does exist on my Microsoft Edge, yes, exactly. which I sometimes use, but whenever that AI tries to kick in and help me out, I just tell it to calm down and let me do my job. Yeah. But speaking of, of Australian cricketers, I don't know about them because I'm not a fan of cricket. I'm yet to get into that culture, but I don't know about this gentleman here J- Jonathan hosting and I us will ex- tonight. Jonathan and I will explain it to you in exhaustive detail <laughs> after the show. Please Once don't. <laughs> Once you get involved, it's, it's worse than opioids. It's it's a it's a narcotic. Uh, please don't. But let's let's pretend that that doesn't exist either, as well as cricketers, Australia, or you for that matter, Andrew. Well, I mean, this would be a very quiet show uh, if I wasn't here. Um, but but I did well, wonder if either of you have had any doubts about if not Australia, other places, because I I will confess for a long time being kind of unconvinced that San Marino was actually a thing. And I mean, Uh I grant that it's small, but my my basis for not quite believing it was I was doing a story many years ago in an allegedly adjacent area of Italy uh, and me and the photographer had an afternoon off and we thought, well, what shall we do? And we just thought, what would be fun while we're here? Let's get another stamp in our passports. Let's go and visit an entire new sovereign state. Let's go to San, San Marino. It's it's just around the corner, apparently. Drove around that part of Italy all afternoon, couldn't find it. I mean, this was, this is this is pre-Satnav. So we, well, did, we just ended up back in Faenza, which is where we were staying, thinking, I don't think it's there. I think this is all a massive hoax. But some years ago, Monocle magazine did send me there on assignment. Mm. Um, I met the prime minister, who is also the postman, um, and, and it, you know, it's, it's there, and it's, it's delightful, in fact. I recommend yeah, blink, it. Blink and you're through it. No, exactly. No, yeah, it, it, it is literally yeah. a hilltop with yeah. a castle on it. But, of course, the Guardian uh, invented a place, Sans Serif, uh, mm-hmm. uh, there, <laughs> uh, for a mock April Fool's Day uh, travel supplement uh, for a number of years ago. Uh, and a number of people did actually, readers did believe in it, mm-hmm. you know, because it was so well done, the supplement. And this place came out of nowhere and people were booking holidays to it. I hope they never went. Um, but, but there is a, a, a bleed, Aliona, from internet in-joke to actual conspiracy theory, and because th- there are similar jokes that do the rounds about Finland not existing, uh, the German town of Bielefeld, the Brazilian state of Acre, the Italian region of Melise. You can read on the internet everywhere that these aren't real places, there's nothing there, they don't actually exist. But these things then gain traction and you get enough weirdos on the internet who start to think it's a thing and it becomes a life of its own. Birds, there is an online subculture which asserts that birds are not real things. 
Yeah. Okay, do we think that that's what the board of directors of OpenAI meant when they said that Sam Altman wasn't really candid with them <laughs> when they sacked yeah. them? Was that him coming up with all sorts of nonsense and denying things? Yeah. Um, but in all seriousness, again, this perfectly ties in with the topic of disinformation. We need to make sure that some people are just healed, but there will always be a category of people who will fall fall for these absolutely ridiculous things. There's nothing we can do about it. But there is there's also a serious underlying question here, I think, Jonathan, which I have had raised before by people I've known, friends of mine, people I've worked with in the places concerned about what the standard online culture actually recognises as a country. I can remember uh, an interpreter I used in Gaza many years ago who just said it was always incredibly irritating to her when she was online and there's the drop-down menu that says, what country are you in? And she scrolls down looking for Palestine and it wasn't there. Yeah. 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 Which way round should the online realm handle things like that? Obviously, if you put Taiwan on your drop-down menu, you're done for in China. Yeah, I mean, Taiwan is a very good example of this because Taiwan, I mean, and a lot of uh, printers and publishers send books to be printed in China because it's cheaper there. But then they run into problems because the printers look at the map of the the East Asia region and they find that Taiwan is in a different color to mainland China and they refuse to print the book. And uh, (laughs) it's it's pretty important, you know, this this may seem like a trivial, small example, but uh, it is important that countries whose existence is denied by other countries for political reasons should be shown as existing. Well, now, I, does that apply to Australia? Well, I was just going to say in closing, I would like to reassure all listeners and possibly even myself that at least as of when was I last there? The last week of July. I mean, it, it looked like Australia. I mean, yeah. I, I, I did see an actual kangaroo. Well, uh, I didn't. When I went to Australia the last time, uh, my wife was very disappointed indeed because we didn't see a single kangaroo. Which part we, of Australia were you in? We drove up and down the, the coast near Melbourne and there were no kangaroos to be seen. I think we've just fueled the conspiracy. <laughs> so this is it, you see. Send more kangaroos. <laughs> Are you prepared to argue, Jonathan, that while Australia may be real, you're starting to have your doubts about kangaroos? No, it's Australia. Rather, I know kangaroos exist because I see them regularly in Regent's Park. You can't really have one without the other. (laughs) Uh, Jonathan Fenby and Aliona Livko, thank you both for joining us. Uh, Finally, on today's show, it is time for our letter from New York City. Here is Henry Ree Sheridan. In the year leading up to the 2021 Democratic mayoral primary in NYC, The tone of politics across the United States was set by the social justice protest movement triggered by the murder of George Floyd. This movement came to encompass a wide spectrum of political positions, but in its first year, calls to defund the police emerged as a signature demand. The idea that resources should be reallocated from police departments to more socially constructive areas like education and healthcare originated as a fringe far-left position. But it had become impossible to ignore the prevalence of police brutality. The defund movement gained traction as an expression of anger at violent abuses of power. Mainstream politicians, particularly Democrats, heeded the defund movement's popularity. They began to speak openly about the need for police reform. 
But even at the peak of the movement, few politicians embraced the call to defund the police completely. They were acutely aware that the phrase was anathema to a big chunk of voters. By the time the NYC Democratic mayoral primary rolled around in June of 2021, many of the candidates were calling for police reform in some shape or form, including budget cuts. Two candidates, Diane Morales and Carlos Menchaca, openly affiliated themselves with the defund movement. But one of the candidates, Eric Adams, was unique in how clearly he rejected calls to defund the police. Adams recognised that most New Yorkers didn't support defunding the NYPD and were more anxious about a potential rise in crime. He emphasised his credentials as a former NYPD officer. And while Adams acknowledged the need for police reform of some kind, he said that someone with strong connections to the force, like himself, would be best placed to make them. Adams won the primary and then the mayoral election with the overwhelming support of black and brown voters in the outer boroughs, exactly the communities the defund movement had sought to win over. This was one of the biggest nails in the coffin for the defund movement, not only in New York, but nationally. Last week, Nearly two years into his first term as mayor, Adams proposed a raft of cuts to the city's budget. Every city department will be affected by the cuts, and that includes the police force. Adams has proposed postponing five classes of new officers through 2025. This could bring the number of officers below 30,000 for the first time in decades. Other public services are under serious threat from the cuts, including those provided by the sanitation and education departments. But there has been a focus on the cuts to the police budget in headlines, which is understandable for two reasons. First, reducing police funding is exactly what Adam said he wouldn't do when he was running to be mayor. Second, the police are an extremely powerful force in New York City politics and the loss of their support can have grave consequences for a politician. So why is Adams proposing these cuts? The mayor says he's being forced to do so because of the burden placed on the city's budget by the migrant crisis. Tens of thousands of migrants have arrived in the city, mainly from the nation's southern border, since spring of last year. Adams has voiced frustration at the lack of support the city has received from the state and federal governments to handle this influx. The proposed cuts to essential services are likely part of a political strategy. Adams wants to get President Biden's attention and establish some leverage for the upcoming budget negotiations with the city council. Never one to shy away from catchy phrases, Adams has responded to concerns about the cuts by saying, don't yell at me, yell at DC. This is a high-risk political strategy. If the cuts do go through and Adams is blamed for a perceived deterioration of the police force, it could seriously harm his political future. Whether or not the gamble pays off, the city really is facing a budgetary crisis. Its deficit for next year could be higher than the mayor's estimate of $7 billion, perhaps as deep as nearly $10.6 billion. Adams' political acumen is about to face its toughest test yet.
That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan, with his live-in harpsichordist. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Aliona Livko and Jonathan Fenby. Today's show was produced by Vincent McAvenny and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thank you.